0: Can a shift in consciousness change the world this solution is based on one simple underlying paradigm that unifies mind body and environment in one ocean of pure being pure consciousness during his talk as the keynote speaker at the world yoga festival in london dr tony nader presents new scientific understandings of consciousness and the critical role of meditation a modality of consciousness, in developing human creative potential and providing solutions to our world's
1: problems. We've got somebody really special for you now, Dr. Nader. And I don't know of a single person who's done more in terms of this knowledge base and the organisation, Dr. Nader is head of the Transcendental Meditation organisation. I, I needn't say I'll say organisation because I don't know any better. Is they're, they're operating in 120 countries, right? Not just one or two, 120 countries, and the person who leads them is sitting in the chair in front of you. All right. And he's going to be he's going to be talking, obviously, uh, the subject of his own choosing. And then. But I want to tell you a little bit. He has if you imagine the East Coast of the United States and all the major academic institutions along the East Coast of the United States. He has either a doctoral degree or a man of medicine from practically each of those institutions. He's the most learned man I've ever met. (sighs) He's absolutely fantastic, and I'm sure. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Nader, for taking the time out to come and speak to us today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
2: Wonderful to be with all of you. It's a joy to be here. This is a um, discussion with already enlightened group. Uh, that's how I see it. Looking into the reality of life and existence and what we can do to make our personal life better and the life on our planet and our universe even. And that is from the field of mind and body and behavior and relations, as yoga embodies all of these values. And I would like to thank the organizers for inviting me. It's a real joy. I know you have been through a lot of knowledge and maybe many of the things we will discuss are familiar to you. But I would look forward that we have time to think together and ask questions and make it interactive. I'd like to have a theme, though. And my theme, usually my discussion, which I am working on uh, in my podcasts, in my books, in my teachings and the teachings of our organization, are basically Vedantic they are on the level of teaching that the ultimate reality is consciousness rather than matter now you have heard a lot about this I am sure and I know the previous speakers are very much knowledgeable and great speakers in this field I thought we can rather address questions about the importance of the Vedantic perception of reality and try to address what we can call the big questions in life. There are no questions in my mind There are unimportant. Every question is important. When you sit at a table and you want to say, I eat this chocolate or this cake or that thing, that is a question. It's an important question. There is a more important question than that. It's like, where do I see this in the perspective of my health? What is good for me now in terms of a short-term interest versus tomorrow in a year, in 10 years, in terms of my long-term taking care of my well-being, my health? So that is a more important question on which that smaller question builds its meaning. Now, there are more important questions than that, is that why should I even take care of my health? Why we are here? And these become more and more fundamental and important questions in our life. Many times the big questions fade away from our awareness And the main reason is that we don't really have answers to them in general. We ask them when we are generally in our teens and adolescents discovering life and discovering things. And we ask big questions. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Are we free? Uh, Why there is suffering? Why there is sin? Who brought us here, after all? These are the very big questions that we end up, all of us, kind of, generally all of us, not this group, kind of saying there are no answers, or the answers are based on subjective teachings or beliefs that we have been told in our schools, by our religious background, and... Often, the answers are in a kind of mysterious, a little bit, way. So, I suggest we kind of try to spend this time answering some of these questions. And as we go along, why don't you yourself feel, do I have a question that I have never been able to answer? a question about existence, about being, about the nature of life, about anything. And then when we come to the time of question and answer, hopefully you can feel to ask me and challenge the knowledge that we are going to be discussing today and see whether we can come to some conclusions. So this put us in a framework of As I speak and discuss with you, you are also wondering what's going on. Where do I stand? And in this context, it's important to realize that we all have what we can call a world view, a world view. Our world view depends on our instincts, our education, our inspirations, our knowledge, what we've heard. And our intuition, of course, and our intellect. So it depends on a lot of factors, but we all have a worldview. For example, one important big question with an important implication on our life is Are we free? Are we actually free human beings to decide what we decide? And before I ask how many think we are free, I want to say that there were many possibilities about freedom and I'd like to actually share with you my own experience and how my worldview personally developed and it's not to talk about myself but I'm sure many of us have been through similar or even very different worldviews as we grew up and it's good to review that even though You must be very familiar with this. When I was at school, in my kind of background and education, I was told that, and I understood and actually believed, that there were two actual realities, ultimate realities in existence. One is physical, material, and one is non-physical. The physical material is our body, and it's the universe as we know it from the perspective of energy and fields of energy and how it developed from the Big Bang, etc. And the other aspect is non-material, non-physical, which we can call spiritual or we can call consciousness. It is that aspect of ourself that is not amenable to our senses. We can't touch it. We can't smell it. We can't taste it, we can't see it. It's an experience. In other ways, we can call it a subjective reality, our own subjective sense of being. I am here, I have a name, I exist, and I have a soul, I have a being. And that aspect is a reality And there is another reality, which is my physical reality, which is constantly changing, always changing, never the same, really. We know that, of course, from the physical reality. Even if you go to the level of the atoms, they're always moving and changing. The stone that you see, the mountain that you see, it looks to be the same for a long time, but it's constantly changing. Everything is constantly changing. So the physical is a field of change, of energy and there is a field which is the spiritual field which we can call our soul or our consciousness our being something that's different and as you know this is the perception of duality or dualism and from a philosophical perspective there are two realities and we remember Descartes who in the Cartesian system who was one of the first to say There are these two realities and they somehow interact with each other. We don't know how they do it, but they somehow interact with each other. Now, there are entities in reality, according to the dualism perspective, at least at that time when I was being taught, and in many, many kinds of beliefs, there are entities that are purely physical, material, and for this, obviously, the stones, the mountain, the, and they consider also the trees and even the animals. And there are entities that can be purely spiritual, like angels or demons. And those exist also. So reality had these kind of general categories. Now, I was also taught that the spiritual is something that takes us up towards heaven, towards higher values, we can surmount our physical needs and our physical pleasures and limitations and get into something that elevates us. Whereas the physical is something that actually brings us to the earth, brings us down and its pleasures and its realities take us more on a kind of what we used to call the animal kind of thing. Now, at that time, also, this worldview led to the understanding that animals and trees and and reality and even environment, they don't have a spiritual content. So you have these three categories, humans, which have the two values, and um, animals and plants and objects that have only material existence, and then you have these spiritual beings, which you know, can be there and they have their own existence. So there are these realms and in these realms there are these mixtures of things that are there. So this is how it came about that we can as humans actually dispose of the physical things for our own subsistence, for our own well-being as we care, as we like because they're just physical entities that's why we dispose of the environment we dispose of animals we dispose of everything the water the air and all of that as we like to support us they are only physical things after all and they don't have a soul they don't have a reality uh, beyond their existence on a physical level so this is dualism now Where this duality comes from, Uh, of course, there are different theories, depending on your belief. Maybe there is a supernatural, because all of these actually are part of the natural reality of our existence. We have a mind, we have a physical reality, they are natural. But who brought them, who conducts them, who makes them work the way they do, what is their dynamics? There is a concept of supernatural powers. Some of these spiritual powers, of course, are considered supernatural also. But as we know, there is always the idea, the reality, the thought of a creative power, a god, or an entity that brings this forward and that actually manages it, that manages all of these aspects. And so, this is one perception of reality. When I went to medical school and I started to study science, it was realized that there are so many opinions about all of these values, and it depends on so much the subjective perception of certain belief systems, uh, of how actually these interact with each other and what brings them, and even about the sense of the divine being maybe biased, maybe jealous, maybe happy, maybe makes their own decisions about reality. And so there are so many factors that are conceived as being the powers that move things from different perspectives that science said, wait a minute, it doesn't really make sense. So in science what we discovered is that there are laws of nature. And these laws of nature are very specific. They are present everywhere. They conduct everything. And we can analyze the movement of the planets. We can analyze the movement of the stars. We can analyze our daily life, the relationship between nature and us, between our mind and body, from a very physical objective scientific way and so science decided to put aside all that is called spiritual or on the level of consciousness and decide that actually it's the physical that is real and everything else comes from the physical so we have a nervous system the nervous system starts working in a complex way, and it creates our mind, our language, our consciousness, and we call this emergent qualities that emerge from the physical reality. So science decided there is only one reality, not two, not spiritual and physical, but only one reality. And that reality is physical is material that's what we call monism in contrast to dualism so there is a monistic one entity now the problem here came when we try to understand what is consciousness what is the subjective feeling of being of our existence that is very different from the physical material reality how can complex physical interactions create consciousness. And as you know, this is the problem which has been defined philosophically as the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness, why? is, As David Chalmers, who's a philosopher, said, there is the easy problem of consciousness and there is the hard problem of consciousness. The easy problem of consciousness is that One day we are going to discover the mechanics of the brain and how the brain works and what it does, and that we will completely understand. And that's the easy problem of consciousness. This easy problem of consciousness is extremely difficult. We are still working on sorting out how the brain works and how it creates the impressions, the feelings, the whole thing. But the hard problem of consciousness is how to go from matter to non matter, which is consciousness, awareness. And that hard problem of consciousness is actually belongs to the perception that everything is physical and therefore consciousness emerges from a physical reality. Now, the physical reality that we have, our bodies, our reality is something that seems to be absolutely real, completely real. Of course, we're sitting on real chairs, we're talking, uh, we have lights, uh, we have feelings. If you pinch yourself, you feel pain. So this is very real, and it's unquestionably real. And therefore, the physical is real. Then how the physical creates the non-physical is a hard problem. Scientists have been now for let's say, 25, 30 years, because before that there was no interest into studying how the brain creates consciousness, they have been trying to find out how the physical can create something non-physical. And I can tell you there is absolutely no hint even of any possibility yet, of any mechanism that makes sense in terms of understanding how consciousness can emanate from something physical. Now, this is one, one reality. The other aspect that can be simplified, and for me personally, it, there is no hard problem of consciousness at all. And the reason is that the question to start with is the wrong question. And why is thats that? Is that it, because the brain does not create consciousness. So there is an alternative to the monistic, which means one entity, one reality, one ultimate reality, that is a physical monism, so monistic physicalism, which is one reality, ultimate reality, and it's a physical reality. There is another alternative, and that is, you can say, Monistic idealism. Idealism, not in the sense of ideals, of having good things and good ideals, but in terms of ideas, which means the primary value of life is not physical, but it's consciousness. Now, we as humans, we experience consciousness, and without consciousness, we have nothing. Imagine when you're in coma, What is there? What exists? Even when you sleep, uh, you don't feel anything. If the world, there is an explosion and there is, let's say, a war or a catastrophe and you're sleeping, it doesn't exist for you. So we live our life through consciousness. This is one thing that's absolutely sure for us as humans, and that is consciousness is. And we're not the first one to realize this. I mentioned Descartes and you all know this, I think, therefore I am, what he actually meant, I am conscious, therefore I exist. Because they were starting to discover that the field of the relative changing reality is never the same, it's always changing, and it can be um, imaginary, you know, when you're dreaming, you think the tiger in the dream is real, and who says that we are not just dreaming right now, all of us, and we are in a dream. We could be in a dream. If you take a second and say, oh, you have to shake yourself and wonder, yeah, am I in a dream? Imagine you're in a dream. You could be in a dream. And actually, we are in a sense in a kind of a dream because we are creating reality on the basis of how our nervous system works. So we see colors from red to violet, We don't see infrared or ultraviolet. We hear certain frequency of sound. We don't hear other frequencies of sound. So we are taking the world from only a certain level of perspective. And our brain and science has shown that reconstructs reality based on the brain itself and its way of working. And so what we call reality is very personal. It depends on our nervous system. What is the reality for a bird? What is the reality for a bat? What is the reality for a cat? What's the reality for a tree? It can be very different. Indeed, it is very different. So, what we see reality really depends on how our system works. And that is to say that the one thing that is absolutely sure is our consciousness. Without consciousness, there is no sense of reality and there is no reality. Now everything else is therefore a color in consciousness, a quality in consciousness. So when we go through all of this, we find that there is another potential Idea, which this is what Vedanta is and what you've heard about, and I'm repeating. It's okay to put it in a in a framework, is that actually consciousness is primary? So consciousness is all there is. I wrote an article about this in in the mid 2000 uh, something, ten or so, and it was titled "Consciousness Is All There Is." So if you say consciousness is all there is. And now you have a heart problem also. <laughs> we had a heart problem of consciousness. Now we have a heart problem of physicalness, right? You know, we say consciousness is all there is, and it's a wonderful idea, and it's Vedantic, and they've been thought through. And there are many philosophers who say that consciousness is primary and consciousness is all there is, that there is no duality, in fact but there is only one reality, but then how does the physical world come? And that is the hard problem of physicalness. And for me, this is how the problem should be formulated. Because the one thing we are sure about is we are conscious. Our interaction with the world is limited by our system and how it perceives the world. So it can all be a dream, and in reality, it is a kind of a dream, and the reality changes based on our consciousness. When you're drowsy, you see things different than when you're awake. When you're in a dream state, you experience certain reality which is not there when you are in a waking state. When you're in a waking state and you're very alert, You can see things from a certain perspective. And if you are not so alert, you see things from a more limited perspective. You're drowsy, you're not clear, you don't experience things in the same way. Your consciousness changes its colors. Now, everything we experience is actually a color in consciousness, a color of consciousness. When you experience love, you're feeling love. What does it mean? It means you're conscious of a certain set of emotions, feelings, physical, mental, uh, even bodily feelings. You're conscious of them, and all of these together create the sense of love. When you look at a flower, simple vision, what happens is... Something projects on your nervous system and your consciousness now is aware of a certain object which you call flower. And therefore, everything is colors of consciousness. Generally, if you are in the Vedantic perspective and you have this problem of physicalness, which means where does the physical reality come from? If everything is consciousness, where does physicalness come from? You have an answer which is usually said to be an illusion, you know, the Maya feeling. So it's an illusion. For a scientist, it's not satisfying. Because this illusion takes over all our reality, you know. This is where we live. This is the chairs we're sitting in. This is the universe. This is our life is lived through an illusion. So how can we find peace and harmony and unity between these values? And my feeling is that this term illusion is a misinterpretation of what this problem of physicalness is. Misinterpretation in the sense that there is some sense of illusion, but the illusion is not where we think about it. And I want to propose to you that all of these aspects are actually real. So we're coming to a stage of being in reality here and accepting the physical reality yet accepting the ultimate reality as being consciousness. Now we have a problem also, how to resolve these two? How to resolve this duality as if of the physical aspect versus everything is consciousness? And this has been a problem I have been looking at and I have worked with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi who is in the tradition, Vedic tradition, Vedantic tradition, from the Himalayas, from Rahmananda Saraswati, who have expounded the total knowledge of Veda and Vedic literature and also the Vedantic perspective. Of course, yoga and the heart of it and the Ashtanga yoga, the eight limbs and all their values and their importance on different levels. And this was a question that was raised and discussed. And he asked me to continue to research that. And I came out with some solutions which I can share with you. And we can discuss them as you like. And they have implications on happiness, freedom, uh, suffering, destiny, karma, and all of these values. So, first, let's start with the paradigm of consciousness that I like to present to you. Take yourself into an imaginary time before the Big Bang. So we're regressing in time now. 14, about 14 billion years, that's what the scientists say, that the age of the universe is. And imagine that there was absolutely nothing so a field of nothingness, yet that field is a field of consciousness. Field is like an ocean, you know, that's just to have a metaphor to understand what a field is. Imagine there is an ocean, and imagine that ocean is unlimited, unbounded, infinite, which means there is no boundaries to it. You might have question, what happens after that or before that? We can answer that also. And the simple answer is, because it actually, in terms of physical reality, it is nothing, then you cannot ask where it starts, because nothing starts nowhere, right? If I say there is nothing, you don't have a problem telling me where does nothing start. There is nothing, To start, there must be something. To be in time located somewhere, there must be something. Something from a physical perspective. But what we're saying is that it's nothing from a physical perspective. It's totally shunya, totally nothingness. Absolute nothingness. And yet it's consciousness. So that is the ultimate reality, which we can call the unbounded ocean of consciousness. One unlimited, non-bound ocean of consciousness. Now, I'm calling it consciousness, of course. And that has a reason, because it is consciousness, as, as the Vedantic and Vedic perspective says, the yogic true ultimate reality. It's called sat-chit-ananda. It's a field of pure, true consciousness and i add ananda ananda of course as you know means bliss and what does it mean bliss if it's just consciousness and nothing else bliss is the result of fulfillment that there is nothing missing when you know when you're happy is that you have something that fulfills you when you're totally fulfilled and there is nothing missing in your life there is nothing you are feeling is lacking there is total fulfillment on every level we can call this bliss and since that field is all by itself it is limited by nothing it is unbounded and it is consciousness pure being it has that quality of being bliss being absolute fullness nothing is missing. Good, fine, we started there. So, where do we go from there? Well, we have consciousness. So the question comes, what is it conscious of? What is it conscious of? What could it be conscious of? Anyone? Itself. Right. So it's only conscious of itself. But consciousness means there is somebody who is conscious of something, right? When we are conscious, we are conscious of something. Therefore, there is a flavor is created of a knower or a person or an entity that is conscious of an object of which it is conscious. So this is what we call a self-reflective aspect of this reality of consciousness. It looks at itself. It turns back onto itself. And in the Vedic literature, it's described that it goes back onto itself. Nivarta Dwam, go back onto the self. Go back on itself. So by, by curving back on itself, it creates the three values of observer, observed and process of observation it is observing itself yet in one mode it is the observer in another mode it is the object of observation and if there is an object and an observer they must be connected to each other somehow and that connecting value is a process of observing Thus you have three values in the oneness of pure being. And this is the beginning of what we can call a moment of awareness, a moment of consciousness. I have called it a bit of consciousness, borrowing the term bit from the um, computer science bits. You know, not from a bit, a small amount, but just the you know a moment of experience a bit of consciousness so there is a bit of consciousness and that will be helpful for us to start understanding how the actual universe emerges and so reality in fact is a moment in which you experience something a moment of experience it's a bit of consciousness a moment of Experience. And the first moment of experience is the first bit of consciousness where this unbounded consciousness experiences itself to exist. So pure existence starts to actually physically, in a sense, between quotation mark, not physically, I shouldn't use that term at this time, it starts to exist by the effect of it observing itself. When it observes itself, it knows it exists. Any problems with that? You know, if you want to say something exists, it must be something acknowledges the existence. So it is consciousness, therefore what is its nature? Its nature is to be conscious. What is it conscious of? There is nothing else but by itself except itself. So it is conscious of itself, yet being conscious of oneself automatically means there is an observer, a process of observation, and observe the three values. So the Trinity in oneness emerges from that oneness without stopping from being oneness. It remains oneness by its nature. It curves on itself and experiences itself as an existent aspect of reality. And therefore, recognizing its own existence means it has three values in it. This has been taken by some traditions, as we know, three in one, trinity, in the Veda, and and other, other belief systems and traditions also. And that is how we can explain this fundamental curving back onto one oneself and curving back onto itself then it sees these three values one is the observer which is a silent witness one is the object of observation and one is the process of connecting to the silent observer to the object of observation now the process of Connecting to the object is a dynamic process. It's a dynamic process because there is a movement that is the curving back onto itself. That means even though it is there is a silent observer, there is a dynamism of curving back onto itself to observe itself. That's a dynamic process. And then what does it see? It sees itself. And that object flavor, that object quality, what we say hides the observer and the process of observation. What does it mean? Stay with me. <laughs> I don't want to lose you. When you look at the flower, let's go back to reality as we know it. You look at a flower, you look at the mic, you look at me, you look at your friend. In this moment of observation, which we have called one bit of consciousness, what is there? That is you. Let's say the flower. We all look at the flower. Look at the flower. Look at the flower for a few seconds. Forget about me and what I'm saying. Just see the flower. Everybody saw the flower? Now try to remember that when you saw the flower, did you think of yourself? or where you are, and why you are here, or what am I saying? It might have floated in your awareness, but what was there in your awareness when you look at the flower? The flower. It's obvious, not the difficult question. There was the flower. So what did the flower do to you, the object of your awareness? It was hiding you. You were no more there. You forgot your own existence. You forgot why you are here, how you came here. What is the relationship between you and the flower? These are there subliminally, but your conscious attention was taken over by the flower. That was a moment where all that there is was the flower. So what does the object do? The object hides the observer and hides the process of observation and takes over the awareness. That is what the object does. So the object of perception hides the observer and the process of observation and becomes the overwhelming reality. So what is the nature of objects? when we say an object, it's hiding. It hides the seer, the knower. And that is actually what is called in the Vedic tradition and Vedic knowledge and yogic tradition, that is boundary. You are bound by the object of observation. You see a flower, you become the flower. You see a planet, you become the planet. The object takes over the awareness and the object hides the seer, hides the knower. That is boundary. You're bound by the object of awareness. You must have heard, of course, you know about liberation, moksha, to be liberated. What does to be liberated mean? It means that you never forget the self when you are engaged in the process of observing anything. So your own inner self as an observer is never lost. Even when you are engaged in observing, in acting, in thinking, you are always aware of yourself. And that is what actual enlightenment is and liberation is. But we can come back to that.
0: Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.